joined today on the podcast by two very special guests, Sondaria Balasubramani and Samir Kedkar. Sondaria is a published author, course creator, and ex-product manager at Salesforce. Her first book, Admitted, is a bestseller on Amazon India. Her blog has been read by 200,000 people and her videos on YouTube have been viewed over 1 million times. She migrated from India to the United States in 2017 for her master's at Columbia University, where she graduated with the Outstanding Student Service Award. Prior to that, she graduated as a gold medalist from NIT Trichy. She's also the recipient of 12 plus awards and scholarships, including the JN Tata Endowment, Cargill Scholarship, and SN Bose Scholarship. We're also joined by Samir Ketkar, who is a nationally ranked immigration lawyer with 20 plus years of experience. He is a managing attorney and founder of Banyan Law, an immigration law firm specializing in serving immigrants working in technology. Recognized as one of the top 20 business immigration attorneys in the nation by HR executive, Samir leads a team of legal professionals that work every day to help talented immigrants feel more empowered and free from immigration constraints. Sundaria and Samir are with us today to talk about their new book on immigration, Unshackled. Welcome and thank you both for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Great. So let's uh, maybe just start by having you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves and what brought you together to write this new book, Unshackled. Uh, Samir, why don't we start with you? Oh, sure. So, um, yeah, and as you mentioned, I'm an immigration lawyer and have been for a while, child of immigrants. Um, my funny story is my uh, mom was actually living in LA <clears throat> before I was born and she flew back to India to have me um, uh, way back, this is way back in the seventies. And, uh, and so I had a green card for most of my life until I became an immigration lawyer and then I applied for my own citizenship. So <laughs> that's, my, that's my immigration story. Um, but I met Sandaria through um, a common connection um, and she became a client of mine. And you know, as we worked together, we just realized we had so many of kind of the same interests in terms of how we can make life better for immigrants here in the U.S. Great. So uh, unfortunately, since you have a, you had a green card and we're not born in the U.S., you can never be president, um, but still. Achieve I'm, a I'm, I'm not sure that's a job that I want, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> not many people, probably. <laughs> uh, great. How about you, Sundaria? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I think your intro um, certainly was very generous towards me. I moved here, as you mentioned, in 2017 for my master's, and it feels like immigration was not on my mind for the longest time, because like most students, I came on F1. So once you pass the F1 interview, you're not really thinking about immigration beyond that. It's kind of shoved to the back of your mind and you move on with your grad studies. And then it resurfaced again when I applied for the H1B lottery, which I'm sure the viewers are uh, you know, aware of. Uh, and thankfully, my name got picked in the lottery. Uh, but then, as I was working at Salesforce back then as a an associate product manager, I just began thinking that, you know, at some point, I'd love to have my own venture and become a solopreneur here. So that's when immigration resurfaced again to the top of my mind, because as people know or don't know, um, there are certain restrictions placed on what you can and cannot do when you move here. So. Um, yeah, as Samir said, I met Samir uh, through a process that I went through last year. And I realized that, like, aside from just being a great lawyer, I enjoyed working with Samir. And we just had brief conversations back in December 2021 of last year, uh, talking about 
how great would it be if we can write something on this topic? Because uh, Samir also seemed like somebody who was very creative. And some lawyers are willing to be creative and some are not. And it's it's kind of, it's amazing when you meet somebody who's willing to do that um, on client's behalf. So, but it wasn't until July of this year or August of this year that we actually began working on this. So we just had some brief conversations back in December. Um, but once again, it resurfaced this year. Right. And just for clarification for our listeners, she's talking about Samir, the lawyer, Kethkar, not Samir Kalra, the lawyer. I'm also a lawyer by background, too. Oh, my God. That's- <laughs> <laughs> and the double E. Let's go with the double E Samir versus yeah, the okay. uh, yeah. I-R. Um, but Sundaria, maybe tell us a little bit about what you hope to achieve with the book um, and who's the intended audience for that? Yeah, it's a great question. I uh, to be very honest, when I began thinking about this, I was not thinking of a book. I was thinking of a short guide on this topic. Specifically, I wanted to talk about the O1 outstanding process because it seemed like a pretty um, unused pathway that a lot of immigrants who are very talented could be using for what they wanted to do. But then as we began working on this more and more, the same thing happened with my first book as well. I admit it was never supposed to be a book. It was supposed to be a short 10-page guide on this topic of how do you study abroad. But I remember sending out an email to a few thousand people um, a few months ago, just asking them, hey, what questions do you have about immigration that kind of that are most pressing for you that you would just love to get answered right now? And I was pretty blown away by the response. I think I got 300 questions from that one email that I sent out from hundreds of people. So the questions all had the same pattern over and over again. It was people asking for, how do I start a company on an H1 or just in general on a visa? Uh, how do I know if I'm qualified for the O1 or the EB1 visa? And how do I start? Um, how do I decide which lawyer to choose? Like all these questions kept coming over and over. And that's when it felt like maybe it's worth writing something that's more well-researched on this topic than just a short guide. And how about you, Samir, as a lawyer, what was your thought process in, in putting together this book and kind of what was your inspiration and what are you hoping to get out of it? Yeah. So, I mean, for most of my career, I'd worked on the corporate side. Um, and I still do. I work with lots of companies, um, but my primary focus was, was with working with companies and um, helping them run their immigration programs. You know, big companies, companies only have thousands and thousands of employees on visas. And I loved it. I really did. Um, but what started happening, I, I had a friend who uh, was working at another big company, very well-known tech company. It wasn't our client. Um, and she was a, a, a kind of a high level business executive for that company. Her husband had a very successful startup, but they were both Indian and caught in the very long green card lines. Um, and they just didn't see any way out. Uh, they talked to the, the company's lawyers and the company's lawyers just said, it's going to take 10, 15 years and we can't really do anything about it. And the company's lawyers didn't really have a chance to look deep into the family history and kind of do like a full assessment. Because if they did, uh, they would have seen that the husband would have merited the green card equivalent of the O-1 visa, which is called the EB-1. He has such a great, you know, successful startup uh, that got a lot of press. Uh, so they were lucky enough to like find me. Like I just, ha- we happened to have our kids in the same martial arts class and we just started talking and I pointed this out for them. Their jaws dropped. They asked me to help. 
we did an EB1 and within a couple of months, they got green cards. Um, and then, but, but that wasn't the best part. The best part was what happened after. So she left her big, te- her big tech job because she did not want to be there. She big foodie. She started a restaurant, um, an award-winning Indian restaurant. I'm not going to name which one it is because it'll totally out her, um, uh, in the Bay area. Okay. Um, and it just, she felt free. Right. And like, seeing that happen, I realized, whoa, there's a big problem here. There's a whole group of individuals, super talented, waiting to do amazing things for themselves and for this country, but but can't because they're stuck in this green card process and kind of constrained by their visas and the jobs they have to keep. So that was my main inspiration. And and I think when Sundaria floated the idea of this book, I just felt like it was a perfect opportunity to um, to work on them. Right. And you mentioned the green card backlog. And I think that's a perfect transition to our next question. Um, we commonly hear that our immigration system in total is broken in this country, whether it's issues of border security, uh, pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants or green card reform and many other um, areas in between. Why do you think, Samir, from your perspective, the immigration system seems so slow and dis- dysfunctional? Mostly because it just hasn't caught up with the times. Um, I would say, you know, our current, you know, scheme of immigration rules uh, was largely put together between the 70s and kind of culminating in the early 90s. You know, Presidents uh, Reagan and Bush, I mean, they were Republicans. Back then, Republicans were actually pretty immigration friendly. Um, it's, it's so different today. Um, and, you know, President Clinton enacted a, a couple of rules that made things a little bit easier, a little bit more business friendly for immigrants. But since then, there's been really nothing, right? Um, really not much has changed since the internet came to be. <laughs> and, and, and look at the state of our economy and where, you know, technology workers and what they're doing right now. Um, it, it reflects the times and the market and just kind of like the way business was run and what employers needed way back then. And obviously, um, it doesn't reflect what companies need now. And, and what the economy needs now. And the reason why it hasn't changed um, is because mostly just the politics, immigration is such a hot button topic here. Um, when you speak, I mean, I haven't spoken personally, but I have colleagues who have spoken to Republican senators and, and representatives in Congress. And privately, they will fully vouch for the um, uh, importance of immigrants to our economy. They understand all the stats. They fully agree with it. But if they publicly support immigration in any way, uh, they're going to lose their votes. Like they just like it's not a popular thing to say in red states. And so uh, decision making is largely based on that. And in order to pass anything immigration related in Congress, uh, they have to get 60 percent of votes in favor of that bill in the Senate. And uh, there are only 51 percent Democrats right now. So it's just not going to happen. Yeah, you raise a really good point there. And at HF, we've been advocating a lot of uh, legislation, legislative initiatives to actually break the green card uh, backlog. But as you pointed out, it's a political hot potato. And interestingly, when there is some, you know, single bills that come out that are seeking just to clear the backlog, they get bipartisan support. But then they just get stuck and don't get anywhere and they just stall. And, you know, everyone agrees that it's important, it's necessary. But until those larger issues are resolved or there's some larger deal, nobody wants to deal with these other smaller pieces that can very easily be fixed. Um, so it's really unfortunate in that end. Uh, so Ndari, I want to come to you in terms of, you know, we got kind of like the technical perspective in terms of why 
it's the, the system is slow and dysfunctional, but from somebody that's gone through it very recently, kind of what's your perspective and what's maybe the perspective of other people that you know that are going through it? Why do they perceive it? You know, what's their understanding of why the system is the way it is? Um, you know, just adding on to what Samir said earlier, I was, uh, uh, as part of just writing the book, I've just been reading about the history of immigration and that's something that I'm noting again. And, uh, so what Samir with the one E you just said is things come really close to the finish line, but then it's like one step forward, two steps backward, wherein, um, uh, I, I was reading about what happened with the H1B cap back in 1998 when they tried to increase the cap to 115,000 visas. So it was increased for a few years, but then it got decreased back again to 65,000, but it had support. It passed, you know, the house, I believe, or the lower house. It just didn't pass the upper house. Same happened again with the startup visa 10 years ago. Uh, it had so much support, but just, so it's always, it's it's like you're 10 inches short when you're getting to the finish line. Um, but to your question, I remember when Donald Trump got elected back in 2016, vividly, because at this point I was still back in India. It was November 8th, 2016. And uh, me and my classmates were writing an exam in our university and the elections was happening during the exam. So we were like checking our phone constantly to see what's happening because many of us were going to come to the U.S. the next year. And in our minds, we had this wrong um, you know, uh, idea that if Trump gets elected, then we won't be able to come to this country. Now it seems really naive, but back then, that's how people think about it. People who are not very well informed about this, like we almost conflate what's happening at the national level with what's going to happen in my life today. Mm. Um, but sadly, that's yeah, that's why immigration seems so scary because all the headlines make it seem like you could be deported any day or you're not going to get your stamping. Uh, or if you go back to India, you won't be able to come back to the U.S. again. So um, I think that's what happens at people in my level who are out of college first few years in this country. Even yesterday, I was talking to a few students who are on F1 visas at universities. And one of them was saying that, you know, I, I moved here. Uh, I'm doing my Ph.D., I'm so excited, but honestly, I'm dreading immigration once I graduate. The fact that I have to navigate all of this. So um, there is a sense of like melancholy among students who are here right now watching the headlines. You know, let me ask you a follow up on that. Um, do you have a sense that maybe, it, you know, students in India are rethinking coming to the U.S.? Is there a shift that you maybe in your conversations or just talking to people have noticed where people are exploring other countries because of that fear about the immigration issues that they'll encounter when here? Um, I, <laughs> I think based on the numbers, obviously, because of COVID, the admissions dropped by almost half across universities in the U S and I did, I've read a few reports that say that Canada and Australia are seeing more uh, students from India move there. Um, but it's hard for me to generalize based on my conversations. Once again, the conversations I've had is when something happens in the U S that's controversial, people post on social media and I get a few questions from students saying, do you think I should come to the U S or should I go somewhere else? And I don't know how to answer that question. It's like asking, it's, there's so many layers to answer that, that I generally just say, 
I, I don't think you should make the decision right now when you're so emotionally heated. Set, let, let things settle down and then you make the decision. But I am seeing a general consensus that people are looking at other countries. How about you, Samir? Do you notice any trends um, in terms of your work and what you're seeing? Oh, 100%. I mean, um, even back in, I don't know, 2011, 2012, right around there, <clears throat> when I was kind of kind of deep into my corporate immigration um, practice, uh, uh, the H-1B cap kept getting exceeded by uh, a large amount every year. So we started, you know, thinking about like, okay, so how do we help our clients, like make sure they get to continue, you know, uh, applying their, their talent. And uh, we started partnering with Canadian immigration lawyers and organizations to see if there's any kind of ways that we can facilitate having them set up an entity out there. And that was the very beginning of it. Um, that's, it's completely blown up now. It's just, uh, it's very common. I don't have the, the stats in front of me, but uh, the, there's been a massive increase uh, of talent going to Canada. And it's not just students, it's individuals who uh, are working here and are just kind of uh, don't want to wait the decades it takes to get a green card. Like they just, the, the feeling of permanence you get, you're in your 20s, your 30s, maybe you have a family and you just feel like your life is you know dictated by like, if I can keep my job or not, otherwise I'm gonna have to leave, right? So they need, people need something more permanent, right? In their lives. And so they have been looking to Canada, um, especially kind of in my experience and in increasing numbers and I mean, to that end, we, you know, we consider it part of our job to just figure out how we can give them permanence. So it doesn't have to be in the U.S. It can be in Canada, like wherever it is that we can help. Right. So we partner with Canadian organizations that are specializing in this as well. Um, and then and then the, the idea is ultimately they may want to come back. So then we, we, we talk about ways that they can prepare to come back to the U.S. once they've kind of obtained PR in Canada, and possibly even citizenship out there. So that's becoming very common now. Um, and I think that general state of affairs is um, it's it's a little bit, uh, you know, tragic and sad because I think we're losing such a huge economic and competitive advantage because these immigrants that are coming here are, would have been coming here always, you know, history, history shows and the data shows have contributed so much or would contribute so much uh, to our economy, to just our culture and life and society more, uh, more broadly. So it's a big loss for, you know, America and the American economy that I don't think people really understand or realize the extent of that. Um, you know, one thing, Samir, I just wanted to um, kind of touch base on is that you know, there's a lot of personal, you mentioned that just kind of this idea of permanence without permanence, there's a very personal impact on people's lives on a daily basis. And it's not just the main, you know, whether the main H1B holder themselves, but their spouses, their children that are dependents. Can you maybe give us a couple of examples of, of, of what you've seen um, with any clients, obviously without revealing, you know, any confidential information, but just in terms of what is that, you know, personal impact, what are some of the stories that you've kind of seen and how it's affected their lives on a, on a, on the ground level? I mean, yeah, it, it's like the story of uh, the friends that I spoke about, right? Like, they just felt like they didn't have the ability to live their lives and do the things they wanted to do. Right. And that caused, I could see it in them it caused a great deal of not just melancholy, but anxiety and stress. Right. And uh, since then I've spoken to uh, probably over a thousand, uh, 2000 uh, foreign nationals, uh, mostly Indian nationals who are here on visas. And I get the same feedback uh, just to, high level of kind of stress and anxiety that they live with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I don't even think their employers understand, you know, um, the extent to which they feel this and 
the extent to which it impacts their work and their productivity. Um, and I think it's a huge mental health concern you know, for, for this particular community. Um, and I've been talking to, I do have a lot of contacts within kind of the corporate kind of HR community here, like the, in big tech and stuff. And I talked to them about it. I think they're starting to realize that it's a very you know um, specific problem, but it's still a very concerning problem. Um, and they just don't know what to do about it because the problem is, I cannot get permanence here. Like I am stuck to my job because of my visa. And so one of the things that I love about this book is I think one of the main causes of that anxiety is just a lack of a feeling of lack of access to information. Right. And so it's not an anti, it's not meditation. It's not like an anti-anxiety pill. It's what they need in many cases is information uh, because feeling like to have the information gives them the feeling of empowerment to make decisions and choices and plan for the future. And at least to have a roadmap now, right? Like I, at least I know, I kind of know where to go rather than feeling I'm just stuck at the mercy of the system and I'm not going anywhere. And so that was one of the main reasons why I love the idea of doing this book is to provide this kind of information to as many people as possible. Um, and ho hopefully it has, you know, maybe even this kind of, benefit on a, on a mental health perspective for a massive you know amount of people in this country. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, just uh, somebody that's done some advocacy work on immigration, even knowing all the different categories to me, it's like a big alphabet soup, you know, of all these O1, EB1, you know, there's all these different categories. So I can imagine that people are trying to navigate their way through this. It's uh, it's very confusing and it's very difficult. Um, you know, one follow-up question I wanted to ask is that we had heard some anecdotal stories about children that are on H4s that are, you know, aging out or reaching the age, I think of 21 without, you know, having some transition to another visa and then having to, you know, perhaps be deported from this country. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And if that is uh, a rising concern? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. It's a rising concern and it has the attention of law some lawmakers now. Um, it might even be something that you know, uh, might, might be a rule that can get passed from, from a bipartisan perspective, um, or through maybe some sort of executive order or action, um, at some point soon. Um, because it, it does seem, it's just so blatantly unfair if you think about it, right? Like, um, we don't want to separate parents from their, um, you know, late teenage and young twenties kids who haven't even gone to college yet or just haven't finished college. So I'm really optimistic something will happen, but you never know. Um, it's a huge problem and it's, um, mostly Indian nationals uh, that are going for, through it because they're the only ones that actually have to wait that long uh, for the green card. Um, and there is no solution right now. I mean, uh, I think what some of my clients are planning on doing um, are just kind of, they're planning for, you know, to the change to student visa, get them into college. Hopefully they can get their own H1Bs and just kind of restarting that whole cycle that they had to go through when they first came here, which, I mean, can you imagine as a parent, that must be a terrible feeling. Yes. So. Yeah, we're, we're like in the middle of it right now. And hopefully, you know, something happens soon. Yeah, and I think to your point, there are a couple legislative initiatives around that. So hopefully that gets some momentum um, and something gets done. Um, so, Naria, how about you? I mean, you know, in terms of you talked a little bit about students, um, but H-1Bs that are here, you know, personal impact stories that you've heard or that you've kind of come across in your work or writing about the, you know, writing your book, maybe talk a little bit about that and kind of what you've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so many stories come to mind. I, you know, earlier I wanted to make this point on just Canada because 
uh, I know this person who came here on an H4. Uh, she was dependent on her spouse's visa of H1B and she just couldn't work here. And she had so many ideas of content she wanted to create. So eventually she moved to Canada about two and a half years ago with her spouse. And recently I spoke to her and I was like, you know, I, I've seen that you've grown so much in the last two years uh, with your following on Instagram. Like she almost has a million people who's following her a huge base. And just, she's just thrived the past two years. And she told me that it's funny you mentioned that because that's exactly when I moved out of the U S and into Canada. And when I had to stop worrying about immigration, I could start focusing on all of these other things in my life and just do that mm. uh, and not be constantly worrying about what am I going to do? Can I work? Can I do this? Can I do that? So as um, my co-author Samir said, I really want this book to give people some peace of mind, things that I still you know, need myself as an immigrant here in terms of just knowing that uh, either you're trying everything you can or that this is it. Like these are the walls of the system and you cannot do anything else. Just know, knowing that very clearly and not being in this limbo state of, can I do this? And can I not, um, to answer your question, one of the stories that I've included in the book is actually a good friend of mine. Samir also knows him because he's working with him on an EB one case right now. Um, well, I guess since I mentioned his name in the book, it's okay to mention his name. Uh, he is a software engineer right now and he got his O1 last year, but uh, his name is Mike. He was on an H1B and he had uh, exhausted the first two tries. Like first year, his company didn't apply for whatever reason. Second year, his name didn't get picked. And third year, that was the last chance he had. So he actually got three people to apply for him, like three different companies to put in an application in the hopes that he could increase his chance of getting the H1B. And eventually, um, you know, as fate would have it, none of the applications got picked. So he had two months to figure out what to do. If not, he had to leave the country. And that's when the idea of an O1 visa came across his worldview. And uh, eventually the story had a happy ending. He got the O1 because he had already prepared some evidence for it over the past few years. Um, but hearing him talk about his story and, you know, I've, I'll be expanding on this in much more detail in the book itself. You can feel just the kind of helplessness someone feels when three applications don't get picked and they have two months to figure out what to do and they have to figure out, okay, if Owen doesn't work out, what other country can I move to um, and sell all my furniture? Because what if, you know, the, Oh, one doesn't get picked. Like I have to leave in 10 days. You're uprooting your entire life and you don't get to choose when to do that. Somebody else is choosing that for you. Um, so his story had a happy ending, but I wonder how many other stories don't have that ending. Cause I also know people who had to leave the country because of visas. You know, you both talked about kind of providing this information through the book, but you know, these hearing these stories, I think most people would, you know, be moved by them. But unfortunately, this issue hasn't really caught on more broadly in the American public, hasn't really captured the imagination um, of Americans at large. Do you feel that this book also can play a role in helping to educate non-Indian, non-Hindu um, American population that maybe hasn't heard these stories and doesn't understand, you know, they may see, okay, this is just a software engineer. He's doing fine. You know, I don't have any sympathy towards him because he's making X amount of money or whatnot, but they don't really understand what that person is going through. Do you think the book can serve to uh, serve that purpose? 
as well and uh, kind of really helping to have these issues resonate more broadly in America? Great question. Um, I want to say in the short term, I actually, you know, Samir and I have this, I hope the similar view that we want this book to be actionable um, because enough people have talked about these problems for decades now. But that's why we're trying to focus this on. We want to really help people within the constraints of whatever is placed on them. Um, not just inspire them, but also like actionably be like, do this, this, this. So it's a very step-by-step guide with stories of real immigrants who've gone through this before. And I, um, you're right. I do think someone who is, you know, a native American who's reading the story, I hope they feel the empathy towards this person, but I also understand if they don't, because as you said, from their standpoint, this person is earning twice the amount that they're earning and they can go back to India. And that's true, right? Because even though we are immigrants, we are still the most privileged of immigrants. If you look at the rung of just immigrants, like there's people who are fleeing their home country to move here as refugees. We're nowhere near that. Like I'm very, very privileged in that aspect. Um, so keeping that in mind, I, I guess, I hope they just understand that regardless of our privilege, we are also feeling things that they might be feeling um, just in different context. Samir. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Samir with one eye, I'm not holding my breath um, because I feel like you know, a lot of these stories have been out there and <clears throat> I think people by and large uh, for the most part, empathize to the extent that they can. It's very difficult to fully empathize if you haven't kind of gone through it yourself, right? Um, I think one one good example would be immigration lawyers, uh, which even immigration lawyers are split in terms of, you know, certain legislation that would have done away with the per country, you know, limitations on the green card quota, making it the same way for everybody, right? Which seems fair. Um, <laughs> But they didn't want their clients from, you know, Latin America or Europe or, or wherever impacted um, because they didn't really have Indian clients. And so they were looking out for their own. And so that starts happening a little bit. So immigration lawyers, by and large, are very empathetic people. That's why we go into the field. Uh, but even they um, maybe have a limit uh, to, to how much empathy they feel. Um, I, my one hope uh, is for uh, the technology community. Uh, and for companies uh, that employ uh, high numbers of uh, Indian talent, because uh, there is, once again, uh, a mental, I think, I believe in mental health uh, issue and problem um, that impacts productivity. Uh, And I think companies are beginning to realize the connection between mental health and productivity, uh, as we can see with all the different kind of learning and development and um, uh, other mental health initiatives that are occurring within human resources departments at companies. And so my, my hope is that this kind of even shines a brighter light on the problem and maybe companies can redirect some of their energy and efforts and considerable resources towards um, providing more information to their employees and doing what they can. They can't necessarily lobby any more than they already are. Sure. Uh, but what they can do um, is just be more support uh, to their employees, even if it ultimately means that you might get the employees a green card and ultimately they may leave the company. I, I don't think companies necessarily care about that as much anymore. Sure. Um, and so, and yeah, that's my hope. 
great. So I want to turn a little bit to um, some of the different um, categories that are actually out there. I think most people know about H1Bs, um, so we won't really go over that. But can you talk about some of these other ones? You guys referenced them. What exactly is an O1? What is an EB1 extraordinary ability visa? Um, what are kind of these things? What are the options for people to get access to these other types of, of visas? And maybe if you can go into that a little bit, as well as maybe what are some of the common myths or misunderstandings about them? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the common misunderstanding is that you need a PhD or a Nobel Prize uh, to get either an O1 or an EB1. And the straight answer is you absolutely do not. Um, they're not easy to get. Uh, they definitely, um, you know, will challenge you. Um, but th they're not as hard as you might think either. So the, like somewhere in the, in the middle lies the truth. And that I've heard from people, even that gives people hope, right? Like that maybe, maybe I can work towards it. Right. And so what are they? Um, they are in fact, very similar to each other. The O1 is a temporary visa like the H1B. Um, it must be sponsored by a company or by an agency. Um, and it's valid for, you know, initially three years and then one year extensions after that, uh, to sponsor your employment or the work that you do. Okay. So in that way, it's very similar to like what the H1B construct is. Uh, but, uh, the requirements are very different. Like you have to show that you're one of the very top few uh, percentage points of people in your field. Um, and you have to meet three criteria of, you know, eight or nine or 10, depending on which kind of O1 we're talking about. And so common criteria, let's say for people in technology would be, you play a critical role for your company. Uh, you make more money than, or you will make more money than maybe the 90th percentile of people in your job and your location. Um, maybe you've published, uh, maybe you've done peer review, maybe you've judged, uh, you know, competitions. Um, maybe you've made a significant contribution to your field. Like when you think about it in that way, like we have so many talented people mm -hmm. that are like, yeah, I've done these things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which kind of like, you know, puts a spotlight on like this problem. Like it's a huge problem. We have all these talented people who are like doing amazing things and we just don't view them as such. Right. Because we just don't know about it. Right. Um, they don't even know about like they're doing things that merit them possibly for no one. And, and what I find is that sometimes they get, they have like two and they're like, Oh, but if I just, you know, work on this, I can get three and I can get no one visa. So that's a very common reaction I get. And then actually it's even more common for the EB1, uh, which is where this comes up. And EB1 is just the green card version of that, the permanent version of that. And it's one of the very few green card processes where you can sponsor yourself. You don't need a company to sponsor. Yeah. Right. Um, the other one is called the national interest waiver. It doesn't help Indians because it's EB2, um, which Indians already have EB2. Uh, most, mostly they have EB2 processing are um, in priority dates in place. So, um, but the EB1 is very similar to the O1 and, uh, it's harder. Uh, it's a little bit harder. Um, but once again, you just have to meet these criteria. And it's one of those things where people often have one or two, maybe even three, and they just need one more to push them over the edge. And a couple of years of concerted work, um, putting themselves in a position to get that and build their profile, uh, is worth it for this large group of individuals who otherwise would be waiting decades and seeing their kids age out and and who knows what else might have to leave the U.S. So just to clarify yeah. before I come to you, Sandaria. So if you are, let's say somebody that's here on an H-1B and in the regular green card line, you can then apply for, would you apply for the EB-1 or how does that work? Um, and what are your options there? Yeah. So take your, you know, H-1B um, visa holder at Google. Okay. Just the mm -hmm. name of company. Uh, and uh, they are doing great things at Google. They can sponsor themselves in theory for an EB-1. 
uh, while they're at Google. Okay. Now, Google's not going to do it because Google's done what <laughs> they need to do from their end to just give them the normal EB2 process that'll continue their work authorization. That's really all, uh, that's kind of where the company's, you know, um, responsibility ends for the most part. Okay. So you as an individual got to take things into your own hands and put yourself in a position to do an EB1, which you can apply for yourself, even if you're an H1B status. And what are the actual numbers of those that are available uh, maybe in any given uh, year? Uh, it varies. It changes. I mean, there, there's a, a static quota for all employment-based green cards every year. Okay. Um, but every month, the State Department assesses what it's like the demand looking like uh, for each category. EB1 gets the first cut of any of those numbers. So generally speaking, they're immediately available every year uh, because they get the first cut, right? Um, there are times where the demand is so overwhelming for EB1. Remember, it's per country, so EB1 India, sure. that maybe there's a small backlog there. Um, but the backlog could be six months. It could be a year, a year and a half, something like that. Not you know, 50 years like, like it is for EB2. Sure. Got it. Uh, Sundaria, something to add there? Um, yeah. I just wanted to mention on the numbers that you mentioned. So because I was looking at the numbers of just O1 and EB1, once again, these numbers are published by the, um, the NIW, correct me if I'm wrong, Samir. Uh, it's the worldwide numbers published of total number of O1 stamps issued across the world. So it's not really representative of the total number of O1s issued because people could do change of status within the country from H1B to O1, and they might not leave the country. So at that point, they don't really get the O1 stamp yet. Um, but overall, the numbers, if you look at the last 20 years, have doubled every 10 years. So 20 years ago, number of O1s issued were 3,000 a year based on this stat. And right now, you know, it's doubled and then doubled again. So uh, it's more like 15,000 at this point, which is still a very, very, very small number if you compare it to, for example, H-1Bs, because there's like 300,000 H-1B applications put in every year, but only 15,000 O1s that's actually being issued, uh, which shows that there's probably more people who could be applying for the O1 and rather than the H-1B. And there is, obviously it has a very high bar, but there's also a lack of awareness, which is stopping some people from applying for it. Yeah. And those numbers you're talking about from the State Department talk about the visa stamps that are issued at consulates, but they can only be issued once, you know, Homeland Security approves the O-1 petition, the work permit, right? And, you know, O-1 work permits are approved at a 90% rate right now, which is like, oh. I was I was stunned to hear that. We just got the <clears throat> stats out pretty recently from DHS. Um, not granted, um, people are going to apply for O-1s are maybe the kind of people that would be approved anyways, right? Um, but that's still a, like a studying like, high number, right? And, and, it, and it kind of goes to show that it's possible. Like there are lots of O-1 applications um, submitted every year and then 90% approval rate. So that should at least give you some, some proof of thought there. And do you guys go through the O-1 and EB-1 process in your book at all? Do you talk about that um, in terms of what people can do? <laughs> Sorry, I laugh because, um, yes, that's probably going to be the two longest chapters in the book. Okay. Because the O1, um, the first draft is complete. It's 9,000 words. So we need to cut down on the number of words on the chapter. But yes, we will be. Uh, actually, I just wanted to mention that beyond the book itself, um, we're also, you know, my one of my 
like even more uh, exciting visions, even more than the book is building a community of people who can congregate together, who are reading the book. So, you know, imagine that there's 10 people across the US going through the O1 process who are all product managers. Um, now they all could meet each other and exchange information on what kind of conferences can you go attend? Uh, what press outlets are you publishing in? Mm -hmm. So like that kind of specific information, sometimes even lawyers might not be able to provide. If someone comes and asks like, where do you think I should go and publish this? Uh, but that can be crowdsourced from other people going through that process. So I'm more excited about building this community where we get people together um, and then let them talk to each other, help each other, and also create a resource hub of like crowdsourcing resources from hundreds and thousands of people, which eventually after a few years would just be insanely invaluable. Yeah. And I think you actually raise, I think a broader point there where people just need to, you know, find a community of support oftentimes, right. That people that are going through similar issues, similar challenges, sharing, not just ideas, but actually when we talked about mental health a little bit, Samir, there's actually sharing that aspect of what they're going through. So I think this concept of having a community and building it around this is I think very important and well said, um, you know, kind of a, you know, another topic that, you know, maybe is not discussed very frequently is immigration, immigration and entrepreneurship. Uh, can you guys talk a little bit, maybe Samir, you can start on how an immigrant can start a company on a visa here. Right. And this, you know, once again, we have uh, so many immigrants who are on visas who feel like they can't, who in their minds, I've heard them say this, I cannot start my company until I'm on the green card. I think um, I'm blanking on uh, uh, the founder, but he was profiled by Guy Raz on, on his podcast and how I built this podcast. He, he literally said, I, I, I knew I couldn't start my, my company until I was on a green card. There were six years past uh, where he could have started his company six years earlier. So had he known, right? Uh, so uh, it's not easy uh, and not always possible, uh, but there are ways, right? And so we do go through the different ways that you can uh, start a company on a visa. For example, <clears throat> If you're on an H1B with a company, you can have another H1B kind of running concurrently along the side of that. That H1B can be for your company. Um, maybe it's part-time, right? Maybe you're just getting it started. Um, but you can incorporate a company. Um, maybe if you have some co-founders or a board, you can kind of oversee you and outvote you, which is you know needed in the H1B process. Um, you can have an H1B kind of working in your own company, running concurrently with... Um, the HMB that you that you already have, assuming your company allows you to have two separate jobs, which is often another impediment. But that's just an example. Or um, as Sandar is mentioning, the L1 visa, right? Which is a very common uh, visa uh, that founders use um, to start their own company. And so there are options out there. Um, once again, it's not the easiest thing. It's not straightforward. It's not black and white. Um, sometimes it feels like you're pushing square pegs into round holes um, or something along those lines. But that's the immigration process. And that's the kind of, you have to have the mindset to be able to like work with that process um, and, and try to make something happen. And then things can happen. Sundaria? Yeah, I wanted to mention the last, the last sentence that Samir said there of with immigration, something that I'm learning, still learning is that if you don't take charge, nothing will happen to you. Meaning if you're not actively going in for example, looking at what can I do to prepare my profile for an O1 or what is this concurrent H1B? How do I get there? Who are the lawyers I can talk to? It's, it takes so much agency 
And it takes so much of um, sometimes just blind optimism to keep going forward, even when it feels like there is no reason to. Um, and yeah, I think with immigration, it's so easy to look at things half glass uh, empty and not half glass full, which is totally justified. I think there are many days when I still look at look at it that way myself. But um, you can also think of it as the own actually makes you it acts as such a great catalyst for you to do things in a very fast way in your career. Um, things that you would not have thought of yourself. For example, my friend, Mike, who I mentioned in, you know, in those two months, he gathered all of the evidence from the past um, in terms of all the press he's done, all the hackathons he's judged, everything he gathered in those two months. And just the, I feel like the O1 actually can be a great as I said, catalyst for doing things fast um, because it kind of makes you, there's no other choice. You have to satisfy three out of eight criteria to get the visa. And if you are currently not satisfying that, uh, there's nobody who's going to come and help you get there. Even your lawyer might not tell you exactly what to do. They might just tell you that like, here's a general roadmap, but you have to take that charge every single step of the way. So um, immigration, I think makes people very, like tough and agency driven. Absolutely. Um, as we're kind of coming up to the end of the podcast, um, wanted to give you guys the opportunity just to kind of provide any final takeaways uh, to the audience. Um, any last words that you'd really want them to kind of get from this, uh, from the book or on this topic more broadly. Um, so there we'll start with you. My hope is that after reading this book, they feel a sense of peace of mind, that there are options. And here are the clear boundaries of those options as well. And if people realize that after reading the book, here are all the options, they actually think US is not a good fit for them, then that's okay too. Uh, I feel that sometimes moving out of the country can seem like a step backward, but I don't think it should be that way because, you know, it's, it's your life. And if you don't feel that sense of permanence here, you should feel free to go somewhere else and get that as well. Um, but at least understand the options and know that you can actually go very, very far if you have a little bit of agency there. Right. Samir. Yeah. I hope people, people feel empowered. Um, hopeful. I hope they feel like they know that they have support whether it's through lawyers like me or there's so many other great immigration lawyers around the country uh, that are willing to help them. Um, and I just, yeah, like Sundari mentioned, I hope they get peace of mind um, knowing that they understand how immigration works more than they ever had before. And we hope that really makes a difference for them and their family. Absolutely. And uh, finally, um, how can people actually get the book? And um, tell us a little bit about, uh, I think there's a Kickstarter campaign that's going to be going on around this. So if you could tell us a little bit about this, Sundaria. Yes. Uh, this is the very first campaign that I know, at least personally, I'm running. So if people visit readandshackle.com, it'll redirect them to the Kickstarter campaign. So that's readandshackle.com. So uh, the Kickstarter campaign itself was an idea that I thought of because, you know, most authors just launch pre-orders on Amazon, which is totally fine. But with Unshackle, there's so many more things we wanted to offer in terms of a community, private consultation, uh, and services that we have partnered with like other immigration startups with. So I thought it actually makes more sense to use Kickstarter as a platform 
and let people pre-order through that. So when people go onto this page, they'll see a ton of reward tiers on the right side of the page, starting from just the book all the way to a VIP tier, which is really meant for a specific type of audience. So I would just say, um, yeah, if they go to readandchackle.com, at the very least, ordering a copy of the book would just mean so much and sharing the word on this because the campaign only runs for 30 days. So there's a window in which they can actually pre-order this. And um, I really hope people do that. Great. Wonderful. And I would invite our listeners to do that as well. And we'll be providing a link to that in the description of the podcast so people can go check it out. Um, thank you guys so much for the conversation. Really learned a lot and enjoyed it. And I find myself very fortunate uh, to have been born here and not have to go through a lot of these experiences. So, you know, thank you for sharing your knowledge um, and insight on these issues and um, definitely best of luck with the book and hope it can help uh, people and uh, chart out pathways that are best for for them to figure out their immigration pathway. So once again, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much, Samir. And you were born here, so maybe you can run for president. <laughs> Not a job I want either, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.indoamerican.org slash donate.